We have remembered the death and the resurrection of Christ and the precious truth and the celebration that that gives to our lives and the hope. Um, And so now we'll turn into the scriptures themselves. Last Sunday, we began a new series for fall. We are exploring some of the more invisible characters in the Bible. We'll learn about people you may have or have not heard about, kind of the supporting actors and actors behind the scenes. And we're going to go beyond the obvious and talk about some people who maybe deserve some accolades but don't get it very often, and now they're going to get it. Now, why are we doing this? For three reasons I went over last week. Number one, because we are God's invisibles too. Let's face it, we are. And because, number two, because invisibles boast only in God. And number three, because God changes the world when he uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. See, that's us, invisibles. Invisible in the eyes of the world, boasting only in God and doing extraordinary things for the kingdom. Last Sunday, we looked at who? Zelophehad and, uh, well, his daughters, actually, the five of them, five sisters, who changed the inheritance rights in Israel forever. They changed the culture, and they did it the right way. This morning, we go back a couple of chapters in the book of Numbers to a story that was actually referenced last week by Zelophehad and his daughters. Um, It's the story of Korah and his rebellion. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Numbers chapter 16. The Old Testament starts with Genesis. Numbers is the fourth book, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and then Numbers. And find chapter 16. We'll be there in just a second. Now, our invisible this week is actually actually a little bigger of a deal than most invisibles are. He has a pretty large footprint in the story. Um, He's there in Numbers 16 and 17. He's again there in Numbers 26. He comes up in the Psalms. He comes up in the book of Jude in the New Testament. And he's in Chronicles. He's got kind of a large footprint. But his stamp on the story of God is not a positive one. I think I can remember, but this might be the only negative kind of person we we are going to encounter. But um, not, not, not a great guy. It is a rather complicated story, so I'm going to start with the Cliff Notes version right up front, and then we'll get into the details as we move through. Just to orient you, where is this going? Where this going is this? Korah raises up a mob of Israelites to challenge the authority of Moses and Aaron. And they don't like their leadership, and they're going to question whether or not, you know, are you really the only spokesman for God? And God kind of reacts to that. He doesn't really appreciate that tack they're taking. And so he does something rather significant. So we're going to look at this and what's going on behind the scenes And then we are going to find some hope, I promise. We're going to look at the story, we're going to learn some lessons, and then we're going to find some hope in the story of Korah. So let's begin. The story of Korah. Korah's rebellion, Numbers chapter 16, verse 1. Here's the context. The people have left Israel. They have left Egypt, and they have not yet arrived in Canaan, in Israel, And so they're wandering in the wilderness somewhere in this 40-year period. God is teaching them. He is shepherding them. He is caring for them out in the desert, in the wilderness, in a harsh environment. 
We don't know how much time has expired between chapter 15 of Numbers and chapter 16, but we know at the end of 15, he gives them instructions about, you know, you really, to stay holy, you should get some blue tassels and wear that. And then when you see them, you're reminded how holy I am. It didn't really work well because the next thing's this rebellion. Chapter 16 of Numbers, verse 1. Korah, son of Ishar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and certain Reubenites, Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, became insolent, and they rose up against Moses. So we need to kind of stop right here. We're going to get down into the weeds a little bit because I think it's important information that if you just read that and rush past it, you don't really understand what's going on here. See, the story of Korah is the story of, of two destinies. you got a couple of choices. Back in Numbers 3, God gave the instructions and he said, all right, the Levites, the sons of Levi, I'm going to set you apart. You take care uh, of, of the tabernacle, of the worship. You don't get land. You get to take care of the tabernacle. And he told them to take care of that and all of the equipment. However, only the descendants of, Aaron's, of Aaron were going to be allowed to serve as priests. They're not all technically serving priests. The others are kind of the helpers. So we got to unwrap this family tree. Levi is the son of Jacob. Levi has one daughter and three boys. Okay? His one daughter is Jacobed. Jacobed has three, ki four, three kids. Um, Miriam. What? Is that right? I should make sure that I'm, yeah, I'm right. Miriam, Moses, and Aaron. Her, her three kids, okay? She's the daughter. She has uh, um, Miriam, Aaron, and Moses. Then he has three sons. The three sons, I can't remember these guys' names. They were Gershon, Merari, and Kohath. And so God takes all of the work that needs to happen to run the temple or the tabernacle in those days and divides it amongst these three sons, and the care of the tabernacle, they each had a role to play. Only Aaron, the son of Jechabed, and, and is, is going to be allowed to be priest. You had to be a descendant of Aaron, not the sons, the daughter. All right? And the sons of Levi are three. The Gershonites, they took care of the tent itself. The coverings, the curtain, they had to do all that kind of stuff. The Merarites took care of the frames, the structure. And they set it all up, and they had to take it all down, the, the crossbars, the posts, everything. The Kohathites, they were responsible for the care of the sanctuary itself, the furniture, the altar, the, you know, the, the, the lampstands, the ark, all that stuff. And they were under direct supervision of Eleazar, who was the son of Aaron. That gets a little more confusing, but that's okay. Back to the text then. So you got to get, you understand what's going on here. Korah, the son of Issar, the son of Kohath. So he's a Kohathite. He's a, his great-grandfather is Levi. Okay, He is the great-grandson of Korah. So think about this. Israel had to move a lot in those days. I don't know how often they moved, but they're wandering in the wilderness. And every time they wander, they got to pack up this tabernacle and move it. The Gershonites and the Merarites, they could put their stuff on carts 
and carry the poles and the furniture, or not the furniture, the, 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 the draperies and all that kind of stuff. But the Kohathites, they had to carry their stuff on their backs. No carts for them. They had to carry the furniture. And not only did they have to carry it, if they actually touched it, they died. So they had to wrap it all up and, and carry it that way on their backs. So you've got intense manual labor and extremely high stakes and no glory. The sons of, of Aaron got all the glory. They're the priests. And then they begin to run with this group of Reubenites. Verse 1. And certain Reubenites, Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab, and On the son of Peleth, became insolent and rose up against Moses. With them were 250 Israelite men, well-known in the community leaders who had been appointed members of the council. And they came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron. Now, how did these two groups get together? The Kohathites and Korah and his descendants and the Reubenites. There's a very simple explanation. Look how they're camped. The tabernacle's in the middle. You see the sons of Koab due south of the, of the tent of meeting. Who's due south of them? Reuben, the tribe of Reuben. They're like neighbors. They're over the fence talking to one another. We don't really like this arrangement. And so they're living next to each other. But, but what's Reuben's beef about? Why is he upset with the leadership of Moses and Aaron? Well, I mean, at least they didn't have to do the menial tasks of the temple. They didn't have to hand carry all this equipment. I think their concern is much more political than it is religious. Why? Reuben, we all know this, right? He's the firstborn son of Jacob. He's the child of prominence. He should have been the heir. However, Reuben lost that honor because he slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah. Oops. And so his right to lead, he is the eldest son, the son of privilege and inheritance. He got pushed aside. And so maybe his descendants thought, you know, we've kind of gotten the short shaft on this. We didn't do anything wrong. And so it seems that the Kohathites and the Reubenites as neighbors began to gripe together. They probably swapped stories while they're hanging out their clothes to dry. And so they come together here in Numbers chapter 16. And you can just hear Korah, you know, you guys really are the descendants of Reuben. You're Jacob's firstborn. You should have a higher role in Israel than you've got. What's with Moses and Aaron? Come on. They, they're, they're, well, this is enough. They've got enough prominence. They're arrogant. Let's stand up against them. And that's what they did. Verse 3, they came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron and said to them, you've gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourself above the Lord's assembly? You see, their argument is this. God says all of Israel is holy, not just the two of you, which is true. That's what God says. But that's only half of the truth. Like all heretics... Korah and his rebels emphasize one truth and leave out some others. It is true, all of Israel was to be holy to the Lord. But it's also true that God appointed Moses as leader over Israel. And he appointed Aaron and his sons to be the priests. Israel was to be a nation of priests, 
But that didn't mean God wasn't going to appoint some leadership. So their appeal for equality for all the people, it sounds logical, but it isn't the whole truth. And so Korah and the rebels disguised what they really wanted, which was more prestige and power and glory, by saying, we just want to follow the Lord. We're all holy in His sight. When underneath, they're really jealous. They want more power. Korah thought he could do a better job leading than the current administration, so he revolts really against God. Moses, it's not lost on him. Down in verse 11, it is against the Lord that you and your followers have banded together. So how does Moses react? Verse 4, when Moses heard this, he fell face down. Has kind of a, a mini prayer meeting right there just before, God, how, what do I do? Then he said to Korah and to all his followers, In the morning the Lord will show you, will show who belongs to him and who is holy. He will have that person come near him. The man he chooses will cause to come near him. You, Korah, and all your followers are to do this. Take censers, and tomorrow put burning coals and incense in them before the Lord. The man the Lord chooses will be the one who is holy. You Levites have gone too far. So he says, okay, we're going to sleep on this tonight, go home, come back in the morning, bring a censer. A censer, the only pictures I could find online were, the, you know, those things on the chains with the, you know, and they swing them around with the incense. This is more, I think, with the stick, with more of a shovel-like thing, where they could go get coals from outside, bring them into the temple, put incense and let it smell and, and waft up to God. But he says, whatever, bring your, bring your censer in and, and come in and we'll start in the morning. Then he calls Dathan and the, you know, the Reubenites together. Here's your instructions for tomorrow, verse 12. Then Moses summoned Dathan and Abiram and the sons of Eliab, but they said, we will not come. Isn't it enough that you've brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness? And now you want to lord it over us too? Moreover, you haven't brought us into a, to a land flowing with milk and honey or given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Have you looked around, Moses? It's a desert. Do you want to treat these men like slaves? No, we will not come. Then Moses became very angry and said to the Lord, Do not accept their offering. I have not taken as much as a donkey from them, nor have I wronged any of them. I'm the leader. I could have, you know, done a little taxation here. I could have gotten some support for myself. I didn't do anything. I didn't ask anything for them. But they're not going to come. So the stage is set. What's going to happen? Let's go to Act 2, Korah's judgment. This is, gets interesting. If you've read it before, you know it gets interesting. They sleep over on the night, uh, sleep, on, uh, go to bed, come up in the morning, and then they gather together, Korah and his rebels on one side, Moses and Aaron on the other, and they approached the doorway of the tent of meeting. And everybody, everybody had what? This censer, this incense holder. And don't miss the imagery. They're standing there in front of the tabernacle. They have this smoke coming out of, of the censer, and it's a beautiful smelling smoke. What's it supposed to get them to think about? The awesome presence of God. 250 of these guys, they each have their own. They're all individually responsible, by the way. But the presence of these censors is a signal. You know, this is a holy moment. Look what's wafting up. Look at the smell. Smell it. 
see the smoke. I think it was intended to, to bring them pause. But how do they react? Verse 19, when, Tor, when Korah had gathered all his followers in opposition, they weren't there to worship, they were there for battle. At the entrance to the tent of meeting, the glory of the Lord appeared to the entire assembly. They're ready to rebel. Korah's pride and his arrogance is in stark contrast with the holiness and the righteousness and the purity of God. And so how does God respond to this pride? He responds in two ways that are very consistent with his character. Verse 22, But Moses and Aaron face, fell face down and cried out, O oh, oh God, the God who gives breath to all living beings, will you be angry with the entire assembly when only one man sins? Well, they were all guilty. They'd allowed Korah and his band of rebels to, to place to a place of, of discontentment of God and a place of they wouldn't trust the leadership. But God, he, they're interceding, Moses and Aaron are, for these people. Don't punish them all. And God hears the prayer of Moses and Aaron, and so he responds with mercy and forgiveness. And yet, that's not the end of the story. Due to God's sense of justice, you can't just let sinful rebellion go unpunished. And in one terrible act of judgment, God moves. And when he does, he reinforces the leadership, the fact that he's chosen Moses and Aaron. Verse 28, then Moses said, this is how you will know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things, that I'm the right leader, and it wasn't my idea. If these men die a natural death and suffer the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about something totally new and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them and everything that belongs to them and they go down alive into the realm of the dead, then you will know that these men have treated the Lord with contempt. So judgment's at hand, verse 31. As soon as he finished saying this, the ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them and their households and all those associated with Korah together with their possessions. They went down alive into the realm of the dead with everything they owned. The earth closed over them and they perished and were gone from the community. At their cries, all the Israelites around them fled, of course, shouting, the earth is going to swallow us up too. Let's get out of here. And then the 250 people standing there with their, with their, their censers, fire comes down and consumes them. This is a gruesome judgment. And it was public. Here's a warning for Israel. God doesn't put up with pride. He doesn't like a complaining tongue, irreverent worship, rebellion against the leadership. So act three is upon us. How are you going to move forward from this? Where's the reconciliation? This, this is far from over. Eleazar, Aaron's son, is told in the next passage, go to, you know, the fire and the 250 people with their censers. Go there, out of the charred remains, get the bronze of the censers. Collect it all together and make a, a cover, an overlay for the altar. So he does that, and they, and they make this overlay for the altar. Verse 41, that should about do it, right? The next day, the whole Israelite community grumbled against Moses. Are you kidding me? What's their complaint? You've killed the Lord's people. What are you doing, God? You've killed them. See, 
they were supposed to get the message that, you know, Aaron and Moses are in charge, and, and you should follow them. Instead, they complain again that God had judged them. And for this act of rebellion, God says, that's fine. We're going to just destroy everybody. And he sends a plague on the land, and they begin to get sick, and they begin to die. Moses and Aaron step in again. They intercede with God, and they're able to stop a complete catastrophe. But the text says, in the end, about 14,700 Israelites perished. See, this rebellion ran deep in the, in the nation. Verse 46, then Moses and Aaron said, take your censer and put incense in it along with burning coals from the altar and hurry to the assembly to make atonement for them. Wrath has come out from the Lord. The plague has started. So Aaron did as Moses said and ran into the midst of the assembly. The plague had already started among the people, but Aaron offered the incense and made atonement for them. He covered their sin. He stood between the living and the dead and the plague stopped. But 14,700 people died from the plague, in addition to those who had died because of Korah. Then Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance to the tent of meeting, for the plague had stopped. Leadership can be tough at times. What a story. So what do we learn? What's the point? I think there's some great applications from the story of the rebellion of Korah. Number one, Discontentment breeds spiritual unrest, ingratitude, and arrogance. When you take your eyes off God, or if we take our eyes off Christ, we drift. Hebrews 2.1, we must pay most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. One of the greatest dangers of the Christian life is to drift Christian life is like, like going down a river, and you either swim toward Jesus or you're swimming toward the falls. And Korah was discontent with his limited role in the nation. And his discontent, it didn't foster any kind of intimacy with God, and he drifted toward the falls. And I wonder, these are days of discontent among us. Are they not? We don't really like the hand we've been dealt, this COVID business. It's changed everything. And discontent has swept our nation. I think it swept our church. There are hints of unrest. But these days, you don't like it in our day, you know, you just go to some other church. And they've done that. Israel didn't have that choice. Where are they going to go? They're in the middle of the wilderness. And that's hard for us. But discontent can breed spiritual unrest and can destroy a heart that was once thankful. It encourages our own pride. And I wonder how much spiritual damage this pandemic has done probably more than we realize how do you know if 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 it's getting to you if if you're letting discouragement or discontentment drag you down spiritually five signs real quick that discontentment is dragging you down first is envy i can't rejoice at your success 
Number two, uncontrolled ambition. I gotta win this thing at all costs. I'm right. You put that on, you take that off, you get away, you do. Uncontrolled ambition. My way is the only way. Three, critical spirit. To have a tendency to make negative, hurtful, cutting remarks or thoughts about other people. Complaining spirit, number four. That's our default, default position. We don't like what's going on. I'm going to make excuses about where we are and blame other people. Fifth, outbursts of anger. We just get mad and angry because my expectations have not been met. And the discontented person looks around them and says, you know, I deserve something better than all of this. And because Korah and the Reubenites were never really happy, they were discontent, they were never satisfied, and that dragged the nation into the swamp with them, or literally down into the bowels of the earth. No wonder Benjamin Franklin once wrote, contentment makes a poor man rich. Discontent makes a rich man poor. Discontentment is, the, is a cancer for our soul. It eats away at us. It corrodes us. It, it corrodes our happiness. It destroys our outlook on life. It's like jaundice of the soul. Because then pretty soon everything just looks negative. And we can't be happy because we won't be happy. We can't be satisfied because we're just not going to be satisfied. And we get to that point when we do, we're miserable today. We're miserable tomorrow. We're a lost soul. And how do you overcome discontentment, a disability, a debilitating condition? The answer, as everything does, lies in good theology. Sin always stems from a wrong thinking about God or about ourselves or both. God is holy and sovereign. We are as a nation where we are today. We are as a church where we are today. You are as an individual where you are today because God wants us there. You may be happy about your current circumstances. You might be miserable. Most likely you're probably someplace in between. It really doesn't matter. But you are where you are at this moment because God wants you there. How do I know that? Because if God wanted you somewhere else, you'd be somewhere else. And when he does want you somewhere else, that's where you'll be. If God is God, that has to be true. Which brings us to a very important spiritual truth. The only thing that matters is knowing Jesus and through him, growing closer to God day by day. That's kind of the point. Nothing else matters. You have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, Ephesians 1. And if you don't know Christ, then the rest of life, it won't satisfy your deepest longings anyway. Jesus has to be at the center, or the circumference of life will never satisfy. Circumstances, even happy ones, will never replace the soul's longing for God. Pay most careful attention to what you have heard so that you do not drift away.
Number two, application. Grumbling and complaining are never harmless. I think what's most interesting to me is that shouldn't this generation, Korah and his folks, who saw with their own eyes the ten plagues, went through the Red Sea, see manna every day, saw the provision of God, shouldn't they be the most happy and content of the, of the Israelite generations? It wasn't. You see, signs and wonders don't always accomplish what we think they will. It seems that the real obstacle that prevented Israel from fulfilling the mission God had called them to do wasn't Pharaoh, it wasn't his massive army, it wasn't these entrenched Canaanite forces who they'd thought, ah, oh, there's giants in the land, we can't go. What was it? Maybe it was their grumbling heart. Because you see, when we grumble and complain, we declare our, our mistrust of, so, of God's sovereign rule in our lives. And we say to him, mm, not good enough. And God takes grumbling seriously. James 5.9, don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. He's, he's right there. We are very quick to think about God's anger for our sexual sins, for our lies. But I think at the top of James's mind is grumbling and complaining. Do we take grumbling that seriously? My role, sometimes I feel like the catch basin for grumbling, right? They, they all just come my way. Your disappointments, people's frustrations, they tend to trickle into my inbox or somebody else's and then I get the message, whatever. Programs, music, expenditures, change, masks, whatever. And each one can be met with grumbling. But it isn't just you. My own heart grumbles in return. And pretty soon there is a symphony of grumbling. All around me and within me. If grumbling's to be stopped, grumbling in the church cannot birth grumbling in my heart. If we're going to be a grateful, non-grumbling people, huh, the leader has to be grateful. The leader has to repent. You see, to grumble is to leak darkness when I'm supposed to shine. We're supposed to be bleach, not black ink on a white shirt. Paul exhorted the Philippian church to rejoice, not grumble, in hardship. Because in Philippians 2, that's how we're lights to the world. Do you shine in a dark world in the midst of difficult circumstances? You see, if we're grumbling, that's the way of the flesh. It's the way of fear and sinful nature and of darkness. But gratitude is the way of the Spirit. It's the way of trust. It's the way of the new nature. It's the way of light got to watch it and be careful. Third application. False teachers will destroy a church. See, some 1,500 years after our story in Numbers 16, Jude records a strong warning about men who come into the church as false teachers claiming to know what the truth is. Jude, verse 11, woe to them 
They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error, and they have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. Ah, now you know what Korah's rebellion's all about. Cain, he just acted in self-will. Balaam wanted to just enrich himself, and Korah, he wants power and prestige. There are people in the church who just want the power and the prestige. Yeah. Here's a practical warning from Korah to us. Don't seek to do work that God hasn't gifted you to do. Verse 12, these people, it goes on, it gets worse. These people are blemishes at your love feasts. Listen to the imagery. Eating with you without the slightest qualm. Shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain. Blown along by the wind. Autumn trees without fruit and uprooted. Twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame. Wandering stars for whom the blackest darkness has been forever, has been reserved forever. The imagery, we could spend a couple weeks going through that. But let me say something. Many of us today are obsessed with a fear of government oppression or of some powerful cabal who's just deceiving us. Or maybe some religious groups, like, like whatever you see as a threat, Muslims, whatever. There are these things, and you get the idea. And I'm not here to say that there are no forces that should trouble us. I get that. But what I think we really should focus on is that that's not the concern of Scripture. That's not what the Bible really is, is saying look out for. The warning in Scripture talks about trouble where? Within the church. You see, our biggest problems lie within ourselves and within our churches. And before I lose any sleep over, over what others may do to me, I better look in the mirror. Because my biggest enemies are what? Coveting, lust, pride, speech, laziness. In short, my biggest problems are myself, my own sin. That's not to say that, that, that today's policies don't affect me, but the things I should really can be concerned about don't come from Washington or Sacramento or City Hall. The application of the core narrative to Jude, in Jude, is to the church within it. He's not talking about outsiders, unbelievers, He's talking about people who come from within the church. He says the message to the church isn't build walls to keep these people out. He says, no, look out, they're already there. And in Jude's original context, there were actual individuals infiltrating the church, and they brought havoc. Today, I don't think that's the only application. I think Jude had any idea of what books would do, what TV was going to do, what the internet was going to do, and how easily these TV preachers and podcasts and websites would become, and they can decimate your faith. And so I find it fascinating that Jude focuses on what? Character, not doctrine. He says, do you see what these people are like? You can't predict all the places that bad doctrine is going to go. It can take all sorts of shapes and sizes. 
So he says, do what? Focus on a person's character. False doctrine can, can take many shapes. Don't look at how successful someone is. Look at who they are. Are they full of pride and selfishness? Are they jealous? Are they greedy? Do they have a lust for power? Could they care less about what the will of God is? See, just like Korah, today's false teachers don't listen to the full counsel of God. They are insubordinate to leadership. And in their end, they'll be the same as, as Korah. And Jude says, woe to them. But let me ask you a question. Why do you do what you do for the Lord? Do you think you should have a little bit of a higher position? Do you think you deserve more recognition than the church gives you? Do you resent those in leadership thinking, yeah, I could do it better. You probably could. Why do you do what you do? See, if our desire is for more prestige and power for ourselves, then we're wrong. We need to be content with the gifts God has given us and use them to serve Him. I promise to end with some hope. Shall we do that? What's the legacy of Korah? Well, we all leave one, a legacy that is, whether it's good or bad, whether we want to or not. And Korah's life, it ended, you know, down in the dirt. There's no question about that. But we discover that Korah's sons, perhaps they were too young to face this judgment. Perhaps they understood the rebellion of their father and they kind of separated themselves. We don't know. But in Numbers 26, it says this. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them along with Korah, whose followers died when the fire devoured the 250 men. And they served as a warning sign. Verse 11, the line of Korah, however, did not die out. Hmm. God judged those who had turned against him in active rebellion, and he purified his people, but he still had a purpose and a plan, even for the line of Korah. After seven generations, who arose from the line of Korah? Samuel, the prophet. The Kohathites became doorkeepers and custodians for the tabernacle. One group of them became skilled warriors. They're mentioned fighting alongside David as being expert warriors. But I think the remarkable thing about, that to note about the sons of Korah is that during the days of King David, they became great leaders in choral music, in the uh, orchestral side of things. They played an important role in the pageantry when David finally brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And then, of the 150 psalms that we find in our Bible, 11 of them are written by the sons of Korah. They're beautiful. They express gratitude and humility to an awesome and mighty God. They bleed with a deep longing for God and a devotion for Him. Psalm 42, Psalm 44 through 49, 84, 85, 87, and 88. There's listed if you want to read them. 
But listen to some of the words that they write. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul for you, O God. Psalm 84, how lovely is your dwelling place. Psalm 46, our God, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. I wonder if the poet who wrote that, the descendant of Korah, was thinking back to his humiliating history. His distant ancestor had perished in an earthquake for his pride and for his rebellion. And maybe, maybe that reflection prompted these words in the same psalm, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. For each of us, you know, may our purpose and our redemption flow out of a heart of humility because we remember our fallen state from which Jesus has raised us and the redemption we experience through his grace. You see, to me, that's the legacy of Korah and the sons of Korah. May that be ours as well. Let's pray. Father, I find great hope eventually in this story that the, that the, that the relatives, the, the descendants of Korah were able to come and reflect on you and your, your grace and your goodness. And they remind us that we find God as our refuge and strength, a very ever-present help in trouble. So today we're not going to fear. We're going to let the mountains roar and foam and quake. And we will be still and know that you are God. In Jesus' name, amen.